Hey, you're on The Frank Meeing Show. Today's guest is an interesting fellow. John Millet is a Los Angeles-based painter, artist, and professor. I think it's really interesting that he's on our show because he really cares a lot about the work that Frank is doing with his civil rights activism and his police reform. And it's important that, that someone like John comes on our show because John has a unique perspective, not only as an artist, but also as a professor of art. Young people these days are expressing themselves in various ways through the medium of art, social media posts to painting to graphic arts to media in the sense of podcasts as well as television and film. But in John's specific uh, background as a painter and as a, a professor of painting, um, you know, he, he has an interesting take on where we're at and why we are doing what we're doing as a society and how art plays a role in influencing people and change and growth. So I think it's pretty cool he's here. I know that you had a chance to talk to him. Frank, what do you think? Oh, it was great getting to spend time and hang out with John at his studio. That's right. This week's uh, episode was recorded at John Millay's studio in West Adams District in Los Angeles. It was a little bit louder than what we're used to, but it was a great way to sort of be around his work and where, where he's coming from and, and to see his and hear his perspective. It was really cool to be in his environment. Absolutely. So here it is, this week's podcast, artist, painter, incredible dude, John Millay. actually in John's art studio today doing the podcast remotely so it might be a little noisier than normal but it, it's it's great to be surrounded by your work it's great to be surrounded by your colors and your expression because mm -hmm. it it enforces so much of what you're saying well thank you for having me what kind of last name is that is that Italian well you know it's complicated it's I think in Italy they say Mille because okay. my grandfather's from Rome. Okay. And it's M I L L E I. Okay. But I've spoken with a few people that are more educated on this, and they think it was probably French, like M I L L E T. Okay. And that a French person may have migrated to Italy, mm -hmm. and they might have just changed the spelling because it's not really an Italian name. Okay. Yeah. It doesn't. Yeah, right, it's not right. exactly Italian. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Italianish. Yeah. So they are, the assumption is that it was probably a migration from like a French family to Italy. Why don't you fill us in a little bit about what you're at and what you're doing? Well, you know, I just spend all my days parenting and painting, <laughs> um, which is, uh, if anybody knows me in the world and anybody listening to this knows me, they're laughing. Because uh, I'm a bit of a workaholic. Mm -hmm. I devote myself fully to art making, and I was a professor for many years. Mm -hmm. Over 36 years, I was a professor of painting at Art Center College of Design and. Claremont Graduate School and SciArc Architecture College. So I've, I'm a great believer in education, really essentially. I think it's the most important thing you can pay forward. Mm -hmm. So if you're an artist, whether you're a filmmaker, an actor, whatever, poet, writer, I think it's our obligation to find a way to teach. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean you have to do it in the classroom, right. but uh, we are the example. We must be the example for a generation. And when you say you were L.A., like, where, where, what part of L.A. was you guys in? Well, I lived all over L.A. I mean, I lived in the San Fernando Valley. I lived with my grandparents because I had some interesting uh, parenting problems. My, mm -hmm. my mother and, and uh, her, her partner at the time, uh, we didn't get along. Uh, he knew nothing about parenting. So I'm really grateful, though. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm really grateful that I grew up a bit feral. You know what I mean? Like, 
So I grew up in surf culture. That was really my defining thing. Okay. And they were the surfers were who really gave me a home in a way because I didn't feel one at home with my, my father or even my mother at that time in my life, you know. So surfers became my home, but surfers have a lot of problems because like any gang, and they are a gang, they have very, very narrow views in mm-hmm. many ways. And, and um, um, I think they're more expensive now than ever before. But when I was growing up, they were very tribal. Right. And um, so I got involved in this very tribal idea of, of building identity around an activity. Okay. You know what I mean? Right. And surfing at the time was not considered a sport. It was more of an art form, right? It, it was kind of, it was something that misfits did. And drug addicts, and you know what I mean? Yeah. Outcasts. And Outcasts. Bank, and, bank robbers, like yeah, Patrick Swayze. And absolutely. Those. And I really, and I loved those people, and I identified with them, and I kept thinking, God, this is perfect, you know, boot camp for going into the art world. Because <laughs> the art world is filled with hustlers and liars and nonsense, <laughs> like any place else. Right. So I really loved the culture. I loved the culture of surfing. It's interesting. It's, it parallels you, Frank, in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right. I mean, I found my home yeah. as a neo-Nazi. Yes, I know. Right? Yeah. So not as a uh, uh, not as a surfer, but I, I get it. You know, yeah. that was your crew. You all knew you were around. Everyone's going to be there almost the yes. same day, the same time. Just what we were talking about this earlier. You know, I, not to tell you, but I used to remember I used to go out every morning to go sit on a street corner in South Philly and absolutely. sell drugs. Absolutely. And hang with my friends. I mean, it's. We hung on our the routine. Well, yeah. the safety of the routine. For me, for me, it was the wall at Malibu. There's a parking lot at Malibu uh, Surfrider Beach, and I knew that I could show up there any morning, and I would knew I would know everybody. We were a crew, mm-hmm. and we would first thing we would do is uh, check the surf, and if the surf wasn't good, we would figure out which one of us had drugs, and then we would participate in that. <laughs> And we would hang out, and we would tell stories. Right. And what was really amazing to me was that there was no age. And this was really important to me growing up. I would meet surfers that were in their 50s and 60s, these legendary cats, you know? Mm -hmm. And then these really young groms. And it didn't matter how old you were. It didn't matter who you were. What mattered is you surfed. What mattered is is that you cared about surfing, right? Mm -hmm. So I I had all these what I call the wisdom people. I had all these older people that, like, graduated from Berkeley, got a degree in philosophy, and completely dropped out and decided, no, man, this is going to be all about surfing and organic farming. Or someone else is like, man, I'm just really into like selling LSD and surfing or whatever it was. Right. But they were all entrepreneurial in very obscure ways. Right. Um, the downside, and which has shifted considerably, thankfully, was an entirely white culture. Right, right. And... And That's was, changed, though, now. Oh, completely changed, because yeah. now surfing is global, and I think that surfers have become a lot more international in their thinking and much more aware of race and gender and cultural differences. But surfing for a long time was like, think about where the wealth was. Mm-hmm. The wealthy lived along the coast, and the wealthy for in this country and in most countries for a very long time were predominantly white people. Right. So surfers tended to be a bunch of white, privileged kids. Right. Right that were in many cases um, feral because, they, you know, they were like latchkey kids. Right. Parents were working there at the beach all day just wreaking havoc. So at one point I realized, wow, you know, I love my friends a lot, but they're not very expansive. And I was really obsessing about poetry and philosophy and art and my, these other curiosities were right. brewing in me. 
And I started to realize I needed to maybe expand out of the, the wall at Malibu. Now, was there a lot of women? Was there women surfers in your crew? There was a lot of surfers, and there were a lot of women. There weren't that many women surfing at the time. There was always, like, maybe 1% of the people in the water would be women. Mm -hmm. Now it's completely changed. It's so exciting, the amount of amazing women surfers. Right. And, and it's, that's, that's been a tremendously important shift. Okay. And when I was coming up, it was weirdly misogynistic. Like, mm -hmm. the girls were on the beach, and the guys were in the, It was like Gidget. You know right, I mean? right, right. And it, it was really backward. In many ways, it was really backward. But I grew up in that. That's what I knew. Right. And, uh, um, but then as I expanded as a human being, I started realizing that there's some really systemic problems in surf culture as it stood when I did it in the you know, early 70s into the 80s. Like, that was, it, it was a beatnik culture, but it wasn't that progressive in some ways. Okay. So I got out. Amazing. And so fr from that world, it, it, I guess, was the foundation of your inspiration to start expressing yourself as an artist. Was it like a, propell a propellant for you? Well, you know, I didn't really like school, you know, and I, I found that I was learning more at the beach than I was at school. And what I mean by that, I don't just mean like learning how to surf and do drugs and party. I was meeting people like a guy named Steve Woods who was this incredible guy, this cabinet maker. And he was like, hey man, have you ever read E.E. E. Cummings' poetry? And I admired him as a surfer, so I was like, who, what? And now I'm reading poetry on the beach, right? And I'm thinking, wow. And I wasn't learning that at school. Right. Or then I meet another guy, Danny, and Danny dropped out of Berkeley in philosophy, and he's like, man, have you ever read Hegel or Nietzsche, and, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm reading these books that they're giving me out of the back of their camper vans. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And I thinking, was getting Mein Kampf. And you were, you were getting Mein Kampf. Yeah, 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 but, yeah. But, but yeah, and, and Nietzsche uh, was uh, the Uberman, was a big, yeah. So I found that I was learning more through true experience than I was in school. Mm -hmm. And I was very fortunate in high school because I had Mr. Wilson, my art teacher, and Mr. Ryan, my English teacher. Mr. Ryan was a big wave surfer on the North Shore of Hawaii, and he spent, he, so he was a teacher so he could have summers off and things like that. He completely, since I loved who he was as a person, mm -hmm. he became a mentor, and he made me obsessed with reading, which I still am deeply invested in. And Mr. Wilson was my art teacher who saw a, some glimmer of something right. and knew I was really antisocial and wasn't going to do well in school kind of attitude. Yeah. And he took me under his wing and just said, hey, man, come to the art class and paint all, anything you want to paint. And he let me do my own thing. And then he would put books in front of me. I'd be painting at my desk. He'd put a book in front of me, like abstract expressionism or something. And I'd be like... What's this? He goes, yeah, I think you might like this. I was very fortunate. I had some really interesting mentors that came along that right. I identified with. And they made me see that art could be a life. Now, can I jump back? Because when you were growing up, young child, was you drawing nice pictures? Was you a drawer? Was you an artist? Was you? Yeah, I drew, but I think, but, but now that I'm older, I realize every kid draws, right? Like, I mean, it was, it's a way kids kind of communicate. I mean, I have kids, and when they were younger, they were both obsessively painting, you know? They start going through puberty and like art stupid, you know, like sure. This it's is the, the ebb and flow. For it's sure. the ebb and flow. Right. So yeah, I drew a lot. Um, I I was pretty good at it. Sure, I knew how to draw, 
but I didn't come from a family that was really encouraging. The idea that it could be a job, right? that came when I met people at the beach, again. Yeah. Uh, Brian Hollister, I'm still very close friends with today, was like a surfer, and he was an abstract painter. <laughs> you know, I'm like, really? You, you do, that's your, your career? Yeah. yeah. I'm like, well, how does that work? Right. Because if, if my kids came home and said they were going to be an artist, I'd be like, great, he's going to be living in my garage. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's great. Well, yeah, and, and that's exactly how most parents feel, and, mm -hmm. and rightly so. As I understand it, you sort of decided to, to pave your own path. I mean, you just said, you know, I don't care if you want me to or not. I'm going to go move out. I'm going to go do my thing, and you can't stop me. I was raised around all these people who, who didn't play by those rules. Right. And then I would come home. And I was told, you should go to college and you should get a job and you should look. You, uh, my father, you're going to love this. My father said to me in the car, and I know he meant well. We were driving somewhere. And he said, and by the way, I've got to set this up a little bit. I have hair down to like a little below my shoulders. It's all bleached from the sun. I am tanned to the point of leather. I'm surfing every day. He, I'm listening to you know Hendrix and whatever. Mm -hmm. I'm making art. My dad knows exactly what's sitting in the car next to him. And he says, you know, I think insurance is a good game. You should go into insurance. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Well, that's all I needed to know, to know there was nothing more to learn here. No. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I was like, well, so he's not even paying attention to what's sitting next to him. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. And, that, and at that moment, it was like, well, Mr. Wilson at school figured me out. Like, everybody else is right. figuring everyone me out. Everyone knows about my <laughs> own yeah, yeah. So, so I, think that, I think that having parents that didn't want me to do this, I'm really grateful in a way. I don't necessarily think because parents encourage you to become an artist that that gives you a leg up as an artist. Right. I think... I think where you come from, you should always be grateful for if, you, if you're happy of where you've arrived. Were your parents ever showing off your art as a kid? Was you my mother, my mother, writer, my mother's always, art? yeah, my mother's always been absolutely supportive of, of me being an artist, okay. sure. I, what I know now as a father, mm -hmm. all you want is your kids to be safe. All my parents were concerned about is, is that I would suffer that I was going to do something that could lead to disappointment, a lot of rejection, right? Which is what happens when you say to your parents, I want to be in the arts. What they hear is, oh, a lot of rejection. Mm -hmm. right? Suffering. And so I don't fault them for being concerned about my well-being. Mm -hmm. um, and now that I'm a parent, I'm acutely aware of how I look at my children and wish they would never know a day of suffering. Right. And I know... Every time I have that impulse, I have to back off. They have to suffer. Mm -hmm. That's the deal. Yeah. That's the deal. That's an amazing segue into sort of what I wanted to talk about today. I think Frank and I both are really interested to, to capitalize on the subject of suffering and what we're going through right now um, as a society. And, and uh, the reason we're doing the podcast to begin with is to talk about what's going on. Right. And, you know, this is an amazing perspective because your vantage point of what is going on comes from the roots we just explained, but also comes from being deeply in the moment because art is about the moment. And what's going on? What What is the moment right now in the art world? What's, what is the moment that, that you're sort of fixated on, which is providing both inspiration and guidance and fear and all the things that are necessary to do what you do? Well, uh 
making art in the art world are two different things, right? So the art world is a market, mm -hmm. and it is, it's a financially motivated situation. And it, there's also an intellectual aspect, the museums and so forth. So there's a lot going on. We're currently facing in our culture a identity politics war, right? right? Well, that's been going on in the art world for at least 25 years. So now that it's mainstream and I see it happening everywhere, it, it's encouraging to me that, that I guess it's working to some degree, that we're looking at these inequalities. Right. But the art, world, the art world has started to address this many years ago. So there's been a massive and important correction in the art world to solve this problem. Um, and it's, it's, doing a, it's doing a really effective job of it. So being in the art world has put me around a lot of people that now we use the term woke, right? But mm. before that word was being bantered about loosely as it is today, right. it, it was just a kind of a, a foregone conclusion. If you were in the art world, you were a person who believed in compassion and, and, and you believed in the individual and you didn't, you didn't worry about gender, race, identity. You took them at who they were. Mm -hmm. You respected who they were. And, and what most important to all of us was, is that able to be expressed in the work? And can that work get into the world where it can do good? And that's what artists care about with each other. Like, are you good? Is your work going well? Are you getting exhibitions? What are people saying? Is your work being honest to who you are? This is all that matters to us, right? Mm -hmm. And so that sort of set me up to become a very frustrated person with the rest of the world in some ways, right? Because I read the newspaper, I see the, divide, the divisiveness of our society. Right. And, and it, it seems so simply solvable, but it, apparently nobody wants to truly solve it. Well, when you talk about woke, now you're stepping on my landmine. Um, right. You know, woke forever meant one thing. You knew there was something wrong with the justice system. Right. That was what woke always meant. The right wing now of America has taken it to make Mr. Potato Head not having Mr. in front of his name anymore as right. woke. And it's not woke. Right. right. Woke meant one fucking thing. Yeah. And that is that there's something wrong with our justice system. Right. You know, so I mean, I see. Is the, that also true? Is that also true? Because I've always wanted to know this. I, I've done what I can research on it, like critical race theory. In the 70s, it was written in the 70s, I believe, as a legal argument about the injustice in the justice system. Right. That it was systemically racist. The largest problem of systemic imbalance and racism is was in the justice system itself and the yes. penal system and, and, of course, the policing model. And that and still it. is what CRT is today. Of course. We have, they haven't changed their message. And what the sure. teaching is, it's just the right wing and, and people like Ron DeSantis saying this is where woke comes to die in Florida. Well, so, right. to, to what you said earlier, John, you talked about hanging out at the wall in Malibu and, and how tribal that was. Right. And, and ultimately, I think, you know, even anthropological scholars will admit and, and, and point out that, you know, Socially speaking, we're just a bunch of different tribal sects. And what's happened now is that these, these tribes are weaponizing these terms. What was, like you mentioned, which was formulated and, and exposed for the purposes of making our justice system more just, has been weaponized to pit ourselves against well, each other. But, but I think there's a bigger issue here. But I really think social media is a, a major player in what's happened. Sure. Because it's given voices to cowards. The kind of vitriol that I've experienced on 
Twitter or wherever, right. it doesn't really matter. I, I wonder if that, that person, whoever said person is, would really walk up to another person and say that to them. Well, they wouldn't. No. Right. Keyboard, keyboard warriors. Yeah. So, keyboard so, warriors. So what, what bothers me is the, is the cowards have taken over and squeaky wheels make a lot of noise. So we start to think that they represent a larger portion of the way in which we're thinking than really is true. So I, I'm deeply concerned at how we're getting information because I think it's creating division where if we were actually in a table sitting across each other, we could deal with our differences, right. you know? Absolutely. So that's a big concern for me as an artist because I look at like Instagram as a, now a vehicle for, for art getting disseminated to a, a large group of people. And I see how the likes work and who gets likes and who doesn't and who gets followers. And it's creating a kind of neuroses mm -hmm. around something really extraordinary. Well, it's also very two-dimensional. Yes, it is. And it doesn't really tell the true story. But but one thing that I'm very, very, I try to do, and I fail constantly, I am a human, I try not to, I try to stay absolutely neutral. Like, for instance, during the last president, I refused to become enraged at all. I, I just wanted to witness it because I saw him mm -hmm. as a symptom. Mm -hmm. So I was trying to look at the bigger symptom, not not him. Do you know what I mean? Because yeah. he, he couldn't exist without a larger systemic problem. And I saw that the biggest problem was on my side, actually. So a very dear friend of mine, when Trump won, we texted and I said, oh my God. And my friend's text back was, yes, shame on us. And, and I thought that was really valuable. Mm -hmm. The first thing I heard was shame on us. He got in because of how liberals were behaving. Like, you, it's not just how the right behaves. Right, right, right. So it made me really aware of the fact that we have a really major problem with how we signal each other. We don't have the tools to speak to each other. Mm -hmm. and, and we're all morally outraged at each other, right? Do you see the state of the union? Yes, exactly. And I find this really problematic. So I personally choose not to have an opinion about Trump one way or the other mm -hmm. or Biden one way or the other. I'm not really interested in that because that, what does my opinion matter? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I didn't vote for Trump, you know, so mm -hmm. that's all I can do as an American citizen. Right. But so I'm trying to figure out, well, where's the larger problem here? You know, mm -hmm. like, and of course, my belief is it's a lack, it's the failure of education in America. Absolutely. So it has nothing to do, the, the liberals need to hear this. It's mm -hmm. not just, oh, those poor idiots, these uneducated people, the unwashed. The rednecks. The red, yeah. No, it has to do with a complete failure of public education in the United States. Absolutely. And, and it's a complete failure of creating exposure to, to, to true diversity. And where I see that in my world, is the art world has great racial diversity now, which is extraordinary. And we've always had a very open policy around LGBTQ, like there's never been an issue. Yeah. So, so there's, no, there's no identity issues, there's no racial issues, but it's siloed. There, mm -hmm. is, there is another kind of diversity missing. Because although we may be this incredible rainbow, mm -hmm. We all politically agree with each other. 
Okay. So I think we have to start to look at diversity in a, uh, with a much broader brush. I'm glad that I can, I can have my tribe, mm-hmm. as we're talking about. Now I have my art tribe, and we're all a bunch of left-wing, progressive, open, politically. Right? That's wonderful to a point. Mm-hmm. But I also want to be able to break bread with conservatives, and I want to be able to hang with everybody. Right. And if I can't do that, then I am not in a diverse society. Correct. That's right. So, so right now we're focusing so much on racial diversity, mm-hmm. which is very important, and gender diversity, mm-hmm. and sexual preference diversity, and women's rights, and which are now under attack again. Right. And those are very important issues, don't get me wrong. But I think we're missing something if we don't recognize how to celebrate political diversity. Yeah. Until we solve that, mm-hmm. we're done. I just want to hear what they're going to tell me. Yeah. Right? I, they intrigue me. Yeah, they're intriguing, mm-hmm. right? And I want to learn from what I can learn from. I don't have to agree with them. Right. I, don't, I don't have to. But I, I still want to love them. I still want to look at them and say they're, they're a person trying to make sense of the world. Right. And they're telling stories as I'm telling. We all tell stories. Right. I have my narrative story of the artist, the liberal. the pre- mm-hmm. They have their story, whatever it is. All, we're all storytellers. Right. If you over-identify with your story, you, you run amok. You know that from your past. If, right. you, if you maintained identifying to your story as a neo-Nazi, you would have never transformed. Right. I don't want to over-identify as a surfer. I, I don't want to over-identify as an, a painter, an artist. I don't want to identify as a liberal. I'm tired of it because I see that these levels of identification actually create silos. Yep. So that's, that's like what I'm trying to do when I talk to my artist friends. Like, well, maybe we better quit, quit this, like, patting each other on the back thing here a minute. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Absolutely. That we happen to agree on everything. Right. And now you said earlier about your, your you know, as a dad, you don't want your kids to ever have to go through, you know. Yeah, uh, well, I don't want and, them and, to. Yeah, right, right, right. You know, <laughs> and, and your parents didn't want that for you. And that... But doesn't some that struggle makes good artists, right? That's kind of like well, yeah. I, diamonds don't diamonds aren't made, you know, in in, on, in soft sand. Yes, you know I mean? it's under pressure. Of you you have to. You everybody needs an exceptional amount of conflict and pressure to evolve. Every one of us, and and um, you should embrace you should embrace every single thing that comes at you. You do not yeah. like. Yeah, and I was talking with uh, Matas Yahoo one time, and he said yeah. to me, every good artist has had a heartbreak. When I was a professor, I said this to my students a lot, every, every creative person has a wound. It's important to know that everybody has a wound. Right. Okay, every one of us. Right. And if you don't have a creative outlet, it will find an outlet. <laughs> so we all have a wound, so let's not romanticize the artist having a wound. Right. Right, because we all do. Artists are fortunate because they have an outlet. Right. Okay. Now, when you look at what happened in post-war Germany, the most important art that's come up since World War II has been German art, by a lot of people's standards. The Germans have made some of the most radically progressive work post-war. Well, I believe that's because they had a collective wound. Right. And a collective wound is more interesting than a singular narcissistic personal wound. This was an entire nation Mm -hmm. that had to deal with the fact that Every one of them probably had an gr- uncle or a grandfather that was a Nazi. Yep. Every one of them. Right. So it's, it's, it's epigenetic, right? It's, it's in there literally into their DNA. Yep. 
So there was this collective wound. So they had to redefine Germany. And the only way you could redefine Germany or any culture is through its art. So the artist set out to create a new democracy of Germany, a new openness, a new progressiveness. And you see it in the work. The work is absolutely some of the most progressive stuff you've ever seen. Because if you're going to rewrite a culture, right. you write it through art. When you hear about the Taliban and they're, they're destroying Buddhist, Buddhist statues, yep. well, this proves the power of art. They want those Buddhist sculptures destroyed because they know the power and agency of a statue. Now, the reason they're icons is they, right. they promote right. thought. And when you think of all the penises that were knocked off of the Renaissance statues, so, you know, and then fig leaves were put because of a kind of new moral conservatism, right? right. So you see that art, art has been damaged by this. It's been vandalized by it. Adolf Hitler rounded up all of the German Expressionist painters and sold, took all of their art away because their art represented secularization and modernization. And he was an artist. Yes, but he hated the modernists because okay. the modern artists were representing secularization, modernization. Individualism. Individualism. Mm. They, they, were, they were all kind of true followers, more or less, let's say, of existentialism, like the true Nietzsche, not, not the late insane Nietzsche who went Ubermann. But this, but this idea that God didn't exist. Right. So so here we were at a moment where artists, concert, were the most progressive people, were all accepting the possibility that maybe those stories we've been telling ourselves weren't, weren't helping us move forward. So their art was very progressive. It was like art after religion. It was now looking at different political models and philosophical models to reshape society. Um, that period of modernism was extremely sexually promiscuous. It was really much more open society. Well, all of these things were very difficult for Adolf Hitler. Okay. He didn't like these things. Right. Um, so his attempt was to round up their art. He did a show called Degenerate Art. It was the title of the exhibition. Mm -hmm. And it was all of this art to show what we don't want to be. Little did he know, it's considered one of the singly most important shows of modernity, and he was the curator, which is kind of funny. Cause Oops. I don't yeah, think yeah, he yeah, saw yeah, that yeah, one right coming. Right oh, that was a great show he curated. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> one of the best. But, yeah. <laughs> but don't ever do it. Yeah, right, yeah. Right. Right. And then, of course, all those artists had to be exiled because they would have been executed by right. it. So when you understand the role of art in society, or look at, look at the Red Scare in Hollywood. Totally. All of a sudden, Hollywood is under McCarthyism, and they want to stop the screenwriters from telling really, really human stories mm -hmm. that weren't necessarily pro-capitalism and, and, and pro the, the, the post-war narrative that they really wanted. Right. And they were, so the scourge of communism in Hollywood. Right, right. right. That, was a trying to, that was literally the attempt to suppress artistic creativity. Yeah. Because that is the power of art. I never thought about it that way. Wait, that McCarthy. Art, art is extremely powerful. And I it's mean, always intertwined with all everything, history, everything. At, at all times. At all times. Well, it's the expression of being human. It's Absolutely. the only thing that really separates us from the apes. It's what creates culture. Yeah. If you really want to understand a culture, you fly to that place and you go try their food and you meet the people. That's great. Find their museum. Mm. Walk through their museum. See what they covet. See what they worship. What are they scared of? What do they visualize? What, do, what are they scared of? What are the images of fear they have? What are the images of ecstasy that they have? Mm. You, you will learn a lot about a culture when you embrace the art. Abstract expressionism was 
considered the most important post-war American art, okay, which is probably the foundation of what I come out of. Right. Anyway. Okay. Well, at the time after the war, you had abstract expressionism, which was like just pure abstract, gestural painting, total freedom. And then you had social realism. Okay. And social realism was coming out of a love of Marx, Karl Marx's theories. It was coming out of like a hyper-socialist and Marxist ideology. And it was murals. They were all murals. And they were all of like the proletariat and these things. Well, and you can look this up. It's, it's common knowledge in, uh, in my world. The CIA infiltrated the Museum of Modern Art and they infiltrated the art world because they wanted to support abstract expressionism as the new great freedom art of America. Because wow. they wanted to crush social realism because that was promoting Marxism. Wow. Okay. So then Jackson Pollock, very famous painter, yeah. he ends up on the cover of Time magazine. The Museum of Modern Art is also has a massive amount of funding for exhibitions. An international exhibition of abstract expressionism goes to post-war Europe and tours as the new America. Mm. All of it was funded by the CIA. Wow. So, so the CIA wanting to propagate a, a new free market democratic society needed an art form that would represent it in the wow. use. How SS of them. Yes, and what's ironic about that is the abstract expressions didn't know this. They were like, wow, people love my work. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. I'm getting shows, <laughs> you know? Wow. Now, to get away from, what about like, uh, what was his name? Rockwell, the one that did all the. Yeah, Norman now. Rockwell. Was that type of stuff being. Promoted over in Europe too, you think that that Less the American or, ideal yeah. to, to some degree, yes, because he represented he represented some very milk toast ideas, right? Yeah. Like, like you know, there's nothing whiter than a Rockwell. Where was he from? Vermont or something? I, I believe so. You know, yeah. it's so funny. The art world is really divided. You know, mm -hmm. we're tribal. Mm -hmm. I, I know who Norman Rockwell is. I've seen a couple of paintings, but whenever I see them, I just kind of laugh because I think. Well, they're not jazz, man. You know what I mean? Like, you know, I, I come out of like like very radical ideas. So I look at that work and I'm thinking, wow, he's that's so. What it is is it's nostalgia. And there's a famous philosopher and thinker named Steven Pinker, and he says that nostalgia is just proof of a bad memory. <laughs> and, okay. and I happen to agree with that. Yeah, yeah, I get that. Right? I get so, that. like, I'm not nostalgic about my life as a surfer, as a kid. I'm not nostalgic. I'm not a nostalgic person. So I don't like art that is nostalgic. I don't like music that is nostalgic. I don't like films that are nostalgic. Like I don't want to watch Grease. You know, like it's the word. Have you heard? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then you watch Grease, and you're thinking, "Wow, I guess everybody who likes this wants to go back to white people listening to bad music." Correct. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. So to me, when people are nostalgic, they they have to take into consideration all of the things that were really, really wrong in that period that they're, they're romanticizing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. If you, yeah. You're right? If you yeah. want to go back to the way America was in the 50s, well, not if you're a woman, you don't. Right. right. Or right. black. Not if you're African-American, yeah. you don't. Or gay. No, you don't, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Absolutely. Well, very few people are going to love the 50s. This begs an interesting question. You talk about being an observer, sort of saying 30,000 feet above it all, listening to what people are saying, observing, trying to not influence too much by, or getting influenced too much by the noise. But obviously it influences you. Obviously, as, as someone who produces work, uh, professionally and artistically, how much is what's happening right now 
infiltrating your thought process and the work that you're doing. Because what's really amazing to me is learning about you and, and where you come from, and what you've created and what you've done for yourself as an individual, as an artist, as a father, as a son, brings you to today. And today you are a prolific artist. You are well-respected in your community worldwide. You have proven yourself to be of importance within the community, both socially and artistically. And the fucking world's burning. And more so now than I can think of in your lifetime. Certainly in mine, I'm younger than you. And my question is, is how much of that is changing and, and altering your work? Or does it, ha does, it, does it make you dig in? Like, wh from all that we've talked about, where, what, what is that doing to your work right now? And, and where do you see the work going? Not just for your, yourself individually, but what is the trend? What is happening to the art world in, in relation to what's happening externally right now? Well... You know, when you take when you take a thirty thousand foot view, you don't see it the way you just said it. There, we've almost solved world hunger. The only place world hunger exists is where there are is political starvation. There is access to food, so people who aren't getting food is for political reasons, right. meaning some sort of government is stopping the food from getting there. Um, or rebels. Rebels, or right? Okay. Um, we, I mean, food insecurity is a different Food thing. insecurity is a different thing. Um, women's rights are better than they've ever been in human history. Less people die f from violent crime than ever before in human history. Um, people live longer and healthier. Wealth disparity is, I mean, we have made unbelievable progress. Mm -hmm. So I start there. So right. I, is the world better now than ever before in human history? 100 percent 100 are there still massive problems 100 percent right. so so i don't look at it like it's worse now there's no way it's worse now mm -hmm. what's interesting is that because we've solved so many massive problems at scale mm -hmm. at scale the problems we have we're seeing much more clearly we do have a problem with racism still. Mm -hmm. I think that um, I, I, it surprised me when Trump became president how many racists came out of the woodwork. And I didn't realize, oh, they've been there all along. They just felt they needed to remain silent. Mm -hmm. So it, that was sad to find out that there's a lot more work to be done there. Mm -hmm. But we're on it. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the, the tragedy of what's going on with the police force around the country um, is a systemic problem that we are addressing and needs to be addressed more. Mm -hmm. I think maybe the questions that are being asked around that need to shift a little bit. Um, how it affects my work, it, it, I dig in deeper to wanting to make aspirational art. I want to make art that's, that gives you hope, makes you see beauty in a different way, makes you see the vulnerability of the human form, things of this. I'm not going to now make activist art. Right. Right. I mean, that's not the role of my art. The role of my art is to like stay the course, mm -hmm. stay the course, okay. be about beauty. Right. Mm -hmm. There are many artists who are taking up the activist mm -hmm. mantle and they're doing an exceptionally good job of it. Mm -hmm. I believe every work of art is political Interesting. because the moment you choose to say, I made this, and you sign your name to it, 
right? Mm -hmm. You are making a political proposition, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. It may not be, it may not be like picket sign level, but the very act in the society that we live in that you choose to do something for yourself and then you want to share that thing, it, the intimacy of that thing with the world is a very political act. Absolutely. It's a political act to want to sing a song. Sure. Right? Of course. That you wrote. Right. You you're know? sharing your message. You're, you're, sharing, you're sharing something. You're, yeah. you're literally sharing. So I think of being an artist as a form of altruism. It's a, it, it, I'm not making these for me. Uh, they wouldn't be the scale they are. I mean, I'm making them for the world. I'm making them for the viewer. I put them into the world because right. they're nonviolent. Mm -hmm. When you go to a gallery, you're not running around being violent. You're going to a place to... Art is nonviolent. Art doesn't kill people. Art doesn't make give people cancer. Art right. doesn't do anything negative in the world in that way. Art only is aspirational. Only. Even the most negative art is aspirational. Even the most radically political art that is pointing the finger, let's say, at, at, a, at a systemic problem is aspirational. Because right. it's screaming we have to fix this. Are we asking the right questions around, let's say, police reform, right? Because like, I wonder sometimes, like moral outrage, it's easy for us to all become incredibly angry at what we're experiencing. Right. And, and, if, and we should be, mm -hmm. clearly. Right. But, the, you know, I sometimes wonder if this is a systemic problem and we don't seem to be solving it and, and prosecuting and, and putting in pr and imprisoning people who do heinous acts as police officers is, is the only end game solution, which is proper solution. We have to prosecute them. There must be, yeah, there must be a cost. But, but we're missing something here. Yeah. Like, like, like. I'm trying to figure out how, how can we solve the problem before it happens. Instead, like, I'm looking for counterfactuals. You know what I mean? Like, right, well, it's back you know, to education. It's back to education, but it's also like, are we asking the right questions? Like, who's attracted to being police officers? Well, Just really curious about that. Like, you didn't want to be one. No. You didn't want to be one. I did. You did want I to did be one. I did when I was a kid. I grew up. Yeah, but you were, you were in, in the neo-Nazis. No, they no, 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 they no, wanted no. you to I be. I grew up. I wanted to be a New Jersey State Trooper and live in Wildwood, New Jersey. That okay. was when I was okay. a little boy. Really? That was my goal. Okay. That was my goal. Which is funny, I became a neo-Nazi and then a lot of my friends became cops. Right, right. But I think you're right. There is something that we're not talking about. And, there, and it's something that I don't even know how we get to fix it, but I know we... Look, 20 years ago, we started a war over a lie. Said some country had weapons of mass destruction and sure. we won in and we... And then you got to sure. follow me on this. Yeah. We won in and killed a million Iraqis. And now all of our boys and girls that went over there to go fight in that war were trained two, three, four tours on how to be an occupying force right. in a country. Sure. Then they come home and they become cops and they take a four-month course on how to be a cop. What training sticks with them more? Of course. Now we went over and fought a war over a lie. It's coming home to roost. Right. Those soldiers are coming home with that same mentality of an occupying force platoon mentality. Because we started a fucking war over a lie mm -hmm. and killed a million people. We're not on the right side of history. So do you think, do you think then, because I, I, I'm following your thread and I, I, see, I see the logic in it. So like when soldiers came back from World War II, which, was a, which by any account seems to be a pretty just right. war, right? And a lot of them became police officers and firemen and mm -hmm. so forth, right? And they, 
Weren't they just as racist and just as bad? Look how bad they beat the crap out of us in the 60s. Right, no, yeah, those that's my point. Those so, military cops. But, but that was a just war. So I guess my point is, is I'm not sure that the lie, the, 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 the they went on a lie. That's right, that, right, right. That, to me, that's a separate issue is my yeah. point. Like, no. I'm, not, I'm not opposed to that. Yeah, yeah. But I think that, I, I, can, I think we can safely say people who were trained in the military even in World War II, came back and didn't behave well as police officers. But, but they weren't... They were in defense of something. When, when they were there, you're right, they, were moved, they, they went and they moved through... You, you got to remember, 1940, 1944, we go through, get through the wall, we do the, the yeah, D-Day. Yes. We're in Berlin in under a year. Yeah. So we were only in a war like that, really. Short time. Yeah. Right? And we went through... Here, in this war... We set up villages and, and areas in Iraq yeah, yeah. that we had to go out and patrol the streets. And we were, everyone was an enemy. Back then, we were liberators. Even, I mean, up in the I, Germany, I, we had short period. But back to, I want to say this, because back to the lie thing is, karma's a bitch. Oh, of course. Yeah. And these troops that are coming home and are becoming cops over a lie. And they had no regard for those people's lives at all. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think a lot of our soldiers went over and wanted to kill German civilians. Not that our men and women wanted to go over and kill, but there was no telling who the enemy was in Iraq. Nor Vietnam. Yeah. Or, yeah. So that they started to have this mentality that anyone's my enemy. Not just the guys wearing the, the soldier uniform. Everyone's potentially going to kill but, I, but here's a question I have to ask about human behavior. Okay? Mm-hmm. That, that is a fact. I mean, everything you're saying, I totally get it. I mean, mm-hmm. you're training people to occupy. You're training people to be in a very a, a position of authority and, mm-hmm. and, and through force um, and goodwill, quote-unquote. Right, right, right. Um, police officers, you know, the greatest irony is the LAPD has on the side of their car to, to protect serve, and to, serve. To, yeah, to protect and serve. I mm-hmm. keep thinking, or serve I, and protect I had no idea they were comedians. <laughs> you know, they, they have that on the side of their car. Really? That's hilarious. That's fucking hilarious. The LAPD, like the worst. <laughs> yeah. They're one of the worst in the country. Yeah, you gotta laugh every time you see it. You have to think, you guys are hilarious. Yeah. But, but one thing I think about a lot with about cops, because we all think about them a lot, because they're constantly in the news and they're constantly not not behaving. Mm-hmm. Or pounding their chest right. about how great they're, and, the work they're doing. And I keep thinking to myself, okay. I have to do this because I always want to try to find empathy, okay? Mm-hmm. Or at least understanding. So if my daily life, if I had an eight-hour-a-day job, nine-hour-a-day shift job, mm-hmm. that I was going to spend the entire day actually confronting the worst citizens in the society, nope. not the best ones. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Drunks. Yeah, you don't get called because well, yeah. everyone's getting Drunk, along. Drunks is a right. big thing. Well, you remember, you when you're dealing with drunks. No, they're dealing with drunks. You're dealing with people who are high. You're dealing with people who, who committed armed robbery or burglary or domestic violence. Right. We can go on and on. Yep, yep. Okay. Now, you're doing this day in and day out. There is no way on earth this doesn't impact you. You, are, you, ha- you must have post-traumatic stress system yep. within, within a matter of days, not years. Mm-hmm. And I think that not only do we need to educate them mm-hmm. better, no, four months my ass, they right. need to be educated. They should, be, they should go to college and do police science. They should study that. They should have to study psychology. And, Law. You know, they, yeah, they, the Constitution, they, the Bill of Rights. Yeah, they, they, need, they need a much greater education. Yep. But then they also need, dare I say, they need weekly group therapy. Mm-hmm. They, this should be part of being 
a first responder, not just a cop. Well, then you're protecting and serving. Yeah, and then that they have to go to meetings and they have to sit in, ro- in group and mm-hmm. go, man, this week this happened. Yeah. And, uh, Dead baby, they have, all of it. Exactly. I you know, that and, a lot. And, and they, need, they need this. They need this and they're not getting this. Yes. And so what happens? They, go to, they, they have each other. They become more and more tribal. Yep. They start to see it as an us against them, an in-group, out-group. Yep. They, they become siloed. They don't, they're not friends with people who aren't cops. Yep. Right? They just become, like the mob. Just like the mob, just like the gangs. Mm-hmm. And, and then they go home to their families, and they, they can't share it with their children or their wife. They have to swallow that shit. We're setting them up to do this thing that's happening. Mm-hmm. We have to be shame on us that we do not demand that the police have mandatory therapy. Mandatory. Like, if you're going to be on the job, of course you would put that person through therapy if they've actually taken someone's life. Of course. You should put them through therapy that they had to deal with what they had to deal with. Leading up to that. All day. Yeah. All day. Yeah. Because I've had a studio here on Adams Boulevard when it wasn't gentrified. And I watched the police interacting with the homeless and the gangs and so forth. And I had to deal with those same people too. Mm-hmm. They didn't treat me the way they treated cops because they didn't see me as a threat. Right. So they were always far kinder to me. Right. And I, I knew that if I was kind and I just listened to them really carefully at mm-hmm. all times, they were always incredibly nice. Whether they were homeless, drunk, cracked out, if I asked them their name... And then I told them my name, and then I said, how are you today? They would always pause and say, I'm not good, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I'd say, what's, what's going on? Right? Mm-hmm. But I have to say, I'd watch the cops. They didn't do They wouldn't pull up to somebody on the street and say, how are you today? What's your name? Mm-hmm. My name is. They weren't showing common courtesy empathy them. compassion care and, and i understand they're on the job this is a radio call they got to get this they got another call coming in i understand their day officer safety Off, officer safety i get all that but these these men and women who do this job absolutely need mental health care they need it mm-hmm. yep. and and if they don't think they need it they need it yep. more yep because no one, and I'm saying this, no one can make it through that without potentially leading to violence or a bad day where you do something you wouldn't do normally because you just can't take it anymore. Right. So, so that's my question to you. Is like I'm all about police reform and I'm all about that stuff, but I also think we have to. We can't fix this problem as long as we're thinking cops are fucked and they're and they're ill prepared for it. Yep. So, so I have I have a question. I have a question for Frank and for you, John. So, one of the things that, that keeps popping up for Make me. Make them paint. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I think to your point, having a, a, an outlet is absolutely the key. Unfortunately, that outlet is very rarely a paintbrush. No, it's, it's usually normally, a spray can yeah, or, a cop, <laughs> or, a co- or a cop bar. Exactly. <laughs> but here, here's the question I have, and when it goes back to education as well. You know, I feel like the relationship between citizens and the police force, I think we need to have a new agreement as citizens and as police of what our relationship actually is. Because, Frank, you say it all the time, and I think it's fascinating and I think it's important to share. These are our servants. These are people we pay to protect and serve us, ultimately. 
That's the slogan. That's their job. Right. They're civil servants. Correct. But because of this gang mentality, because of this mob mentality, now us as citizens who are generally, even if you're white, privileged or you're not, you as a citizen, no matter what you are, you have uh, you put up your dukes. You're worried that these people are going to tread on your rights. You're worried they're going to get violent with escalate. you. Escalate. Escalate, correct. And what's scary is that the right thing to do when you are being wronged is to say, hey, you're wronging me. At the same time with the police, if you say, hey, you're wronging me and you don't comply, you are now escalating. So there's this horrible sort of combination that I see happening. I watch these horrendous videos of people being just completely tortured by the police. And it happens all the time, and it's wrong, and it has to stop. But it starts somewhere, and it does start in their background. Where did they come from? Did they go to Desert Storm? All those things matter. But in that moment, put your hands up. Well, yeah. If they don't, <laughs> no, I get that. if you don't put your hands up, what's okay. left? Whenever I've been pulled over by the cops, I keep my hands at 10 and 2. 100%. And the moment they come to the car, I, my hands are on the wheel, and they'll say, you know, driver's license and mm -hmm. register. I go, driver's license is in my wallet. May I get it? But I'm actually doing it for them. Totally. So I know by virtue of who they are and what they deal with, probably best to not to excite them. Okay? Because right. they're hypervigilant. By, by nature, they're hypervigilant, right. right? But I'm going to take it one step back. I hear everything you're saying. Yes, they, are, they, they have a job where they serve us. They, they are paid by the taxpayer. So we're firemen, but we don't treat them badly. Mm -hmm. Well, they don't so, treat us no, badly. Listen, there's no song called F the Firefighters, yeah, but right. there's definitely a song yeah. called F the Police. We, you know, frankly, first, first, we learned a lot during COVID about essential workers, people who work at supermarkets, waiters, cooks, right? Nurses, doctors. I mean, the reality of it is, I, I think that this is a systemic problem that goes a lot bigger than the police department. If, if you're the kind of person that doesn't see, if, if you see yourself as separate in any way from anyone else, there's the problem, Right. period. There's this class system mentality that my time is more valuable. I, I would never have any trouble with the cops because you know, I don't do wrong things, right? This kind yeah, of thinking. That's, that's the, yeah. I just don't want to live in a world like that. So all we have in our lives is last times. The last time I saw my dad, the last time you kissed somebody you were in love with, it was the last time. I don't know when exactly was it the last time I picked up my daughter, but there was a last time that I picked up my daughter and then she became too big for them. And I'll never pick her up again. Right? Mm -hmm. I didn't know the last time I emailed my friend Lawrence Carroll, one of my dearest friends, and he said, I'm, ha I'm hanging my show in Germany, man. I'll send you pictures. He's going to die of a heart attack two hours later. Mm -hmm. And we're never aware that it's the last time till later. Right? Okay. Right? Yeah. That's how I live in the world. So if I'm, if I'm dealing with a, someone who's, who would qualify as testing me because I'm in a hurry to go somewhere, I see this as an opportunity to just be really kind. I don't see it as an opportunity to be an asshole. Like, I'm like, wow, look at me thinking I'm friggin' important. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So to me, it's about the mentality of every human being, not just the cops and not just those of us who are mad at the cops and those of us who love the cops. And right, right, right. I think we have to really look at how we treat workers, period. How we treat each other. How we general. treat each other. Yeah. And, you know, and, and we're not treating each other well, is my point.
We're not treating each other well. We're judging someone by their car. We're judging someone by their hairstyle, the way they look, whether they're thin, fat, whatever, right? We're so, we're doing this, we're doing this on a microaggression level at mm -hmm. a const, constantly, and all of it is about in the service of our own ego that well, I'm better, I'm smarter, I'm more well-read, you know, I wouldn't have to work at a fucking coffee shop, because, you know, like, right, whatever, right? I really think it, we have to look at the way we're treating everybody. Every traffic stop could be the last day. You talk about the last. Yeah. And, and these people face horrible shit. And, and the reason they face horrible shit is because people are fucking horrible. Right. There are horrible people in this world, and their job, like you say, is inherently about dealing with those horrible people. And I'm here right. to tell you, I've had almost exclusively bad experiences with cops. As have I. Exclusively. Mm -hmm. Okay, and that right down to when I lived in Hancock Park, which is a nice neighborhood, and there was a lot of crime. You know, burglaries and things. My neighbor was literally taken out of his car at gunpoint into a van. His wallet was taken, his, everything was taken. Then they just rolled him out onto the street like a mile and a half. And he comes and he knocks on my door and he's like barefoot. And I'm like, everything all right? And his car's out front idling. And he goes, yeah, I was waiting for my car to warm up. And a van pulled up. Guy had a gun. They pulled me into the van. So the cops show up and they're taking down the report. Big, big LAPD guys. I mean, these guys were scary big guys, right? Mm -hmm. And I said to one of the cops, I said, you know, we've had a lot of this kind of stuff going on. A lot of, you know, people coming up in the driveway when you pull in, pulling in behind you and robbing. Mm -hmm. I go, I'm sorry, I have to tell you guys, I don't really see you patrolling that much. The cop looks at me and goes, you want to live in Hancock Park? That's up to you. Wow. And I said, what does that mean? He goes, you're surrounded by trouble. Because if you know Hancock Park, you literally are surrounded by some neighborhoods that are a little rougher. Mm -hmm. And it's not a gated community. Mm -hmm. He literally put it on me. Like, you want to live here? Deal with it. Deal with it. Amazing. And I looked at him and I'm just thinking to myself, this was a moment where we could have had a conversation. Yeah. yeah. So even though I bring this up, Every time I see cops, I always say hi to them. Sure. I'm always nice to them. And I, I do my very best to try to let them know that I see them as humans because I think they need to start feeling that as often. That's what I mean by shame on us. I think we have to be almost exaggeratedly kind to them. They do not have the support of the police department. They do not have, they do not have mental health care. They aren't every day monitored, are you okay? Is everything okay? What happened today on the street? How's your drinking? How are you doing? Are you drinking too much? Are you, are you going to the program? They need people taking care of them. I was a college professor for a very long time, and we were monitoring our students very carefully. It's a period when students have mental health problems. Mm -hmm. We weren't legally allowed to do anything about it. But recognizing But recognizing key. it was important because then you could write a report for them and then the parents could be notified. Like, we need commanders at police departments need to be in a position where their job is to monitor the police to make sure they're okay. I don't think they're okay. Yeah. I don't think they're okay within a matter of weeks. I think they're not okay, but I think worse is that most people don't give a fuck if they're okay. And that's the thing. That that's my to, point. That's what we need to... That's I my mean, point. But I mean, as a citizen, you know, 
I live I live in a transitional neighborhood here in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. and um, I will say my most recent experience with the police. When I was 13 years old, uh, one of my neighbors had a fixed frame pull start lawnmower motor driven uh, mini bike. A so, Taco 22. Exactly right. Love that. Thing. Okay. Briggs and Spratt, no suspension. 100 percent. Brew banana it. seat. Amazing. Loved it. Yep. And I had the 44. Okay, well, I, I had a neighbor get one, and I wanted to ride it so bad, and I finally got my chance, and I was driving on a cul-de-sac, and, and I remember I went in, down to the end of the block, and it was a stop sign, and I blew through it, and I turned around to come back on my cul-de-sac, and whoop, 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 the lights came on, the cop pulled me over, I must have been 13 years old, I had no helmet, I was wearing a, like my dad's leather work gloves or whatever, and this guy pulled me off of that mini bike and sat me down on the curb and he read me the riot act and he said you're pushing that home and he he drove behind me. i had to push this thing home there was no gears i was literally turning the motor yeah. over with every single step i got home he says you don't ride that on the street this is not street legal cut to today i live on a busy street here in los angeles there are literally fucking gangs of young men and women on these Mini bikes you can buy online for nothing, or quads, or dirt bikes. Yeah, know, yeah. No helmets, nothing. Yeah, they're out here too. Yeah. They cruise around like nobody's business. And recently I had a conversation with an LAPD officer. I said, I just got a question. I tell him that story. I go, don't you guys like pull these people over anymore? One of the most traumatizing experiences of my youth was this officer <laughs> who fucking read me the riot act from, yeah. you know, b- blowing through a stop sign in a rural community outside mm-hmm. of Los Angeles going 20. These days they're doing wheelies on quads down major inter- interchanges here in Los Angeles. And you know what he said? He goes, nah, it's not worth it. I said, what are you talking about? He goes, you pull one of these guys over, uh, he falls off the bike, we get sued. I said, wait, you really don't do anything about it? He says, no, we deal with domestic violence we deal with guns knives murder they deal they deal with calls we we just it, it's just not worth it it's too much okay, trouble no, but to, but to, i mean isn't that a, isn't I mean, that a, a great sort of window into back in the day when there was a sort a sense of what's right and what's wrong and people acting upon it whereas now People just take advantage of the fact that, nah, the cops aren't going to do anything. I'm going to do it anyway. People that drive around with their Harley Davidsons with the loudest pipes you can imagine, and they have speakers on. Mm -hmm. We have headphones in this world. But no, they've got to play the music as loud as possible. To me, I think everyone should have the freedom to do whatever they want, as long as they're not bothering others. And I think to myself, God, these guys drive down the road. They don't care how many little babies they break up from their nap, from the father who had to work a 24-hour shift the night before who's trying to get a rest. They don't care about anybody but themselves. And I think this is the thing that we need to really work on as a society. Are we going to take care of one another? And if we can take care of one another, we don't really need the police anymore. So it really needs to start there. To me, we are not taking care of one another at all. We are, like you said, we're all in it for ourselves, and I hope that that changes. So, um, you know, to be for real about this, um, we all celebrate Martin Luther King. Everyone sure. loves the I Have the Fucking Dream speech. Everyone loves it. Even though 10 months later, the man said, I shouldn't have done that speech. This is a nightmare. You can mm-hmm. look it up. Yeah. He says, this is a nightmare. I should have never said I had a dream. He, in that same speech, talks about police brutality. Mm-hmm. Malcolm X talks about police brutality. Yeah. Fred Hampton. Mm-hmm. This is the 1960s, the 1950s, the mm-hmm. 1940s. 
they're talking about the same subject. Yeah, it's not right? changing. So a lot of people think slavery is our original sin. I don't believe that. I think our original sin is what we did to the natives. Of course. That's the original sin. Of course. Okay. We go in. We push them all the way back to the Black Hills in, in South Dakota. And we say, here, you can have this fucking hill. We don't care. You can have this, your spiritual place. Go ahead and look For now. For now. Just for now. <laughs> so, so we put the Lakotas up there. Then we found gold. And we kicked them the fuck off. And we went in and we stripped all the gold. Now, we'd already brutalized these fucking people to do this. In fact, Custard's last stand, where he dies, mm -hmm. was with the Lakotas in the prairies, trying to get them to go back up to this Black Hills. That's, what they were, that's where the fight was. They kidnapped a bunch of the women and children, brought them up into the hills, and were trying to get the men of the natives to go back to these hills. By the way, they are raping the shit out of their women in them hills mm -hmm. while they're holding them ransom. Anyway... Custer's last stand, the Lakota finally killed this guy who had done so much damage to them. The women of the Lakota tribe, now they didn't tell us this for years, but if you look at it now, the, and I didn't learn this from history, I learned this from Lakota women who told me this story. They put arrows and stuff through his ears and he was dead mm. because they would, you know, they were getting scalped. By the way, Native American scalping wasn't them scalping white people. It was white people would go kill natives and scalp them and bring back their, their hairs and say, give me $25,000, whatever. Just so you know, they're mutilating their bodies. They put these things through their, they put these arrows to his ears, hoping that the world would hear about this because all they were trying to say was, listen, listen to us. Mm -hmm. We're still not listening mm -hmm. to the black community who has for the last 50 fucking years screamed, we're being beaten. We're being beaten. When there was fucking prohibition, they were going in their speakeasies and beating the shit out of them and killing them. And we didn't care until they started doing it to the Irish, until they started doing it to the college kids. Then we said, oh, we got to limit this fucking prohibition. What I'm saying right now is they're not listening. And we could say we can want to treat the police better. This is state-funded violence on our peoples and now with this militarization that we're talking about which is horrible i mean militarized mm -hmm. out the ass on us yeah, I mean, there's armored vehicles in our police force and now when we want to go to the traffic stop i am also the same way if i get pulled over to make an officer feel safe and this is what we should do in schools and i mean every year every every grade should have a week-long class on civics Yes. Civil servants, what they do. And now, if we imagine if we did this, no more searching cars. So when the police go to do these talks, you're going to say, look, we don't want to search your cars anymore. We don't, we don't want to pull you out of your cars anymore. Right. So how about this? When we pull up to give you your ticket, by the way, no other fucking first world country or non-third world country doesn't search cars like the American police does. Canada doesn't do it. Right. Germany doesn't do it. Sweden, none of them. Poland, none of them. Only America does the whole... Can I search your car? So we're letting our servant search the master's shit to look for a little crime so they can get us in a county jail system. So once we can get that to end, we can do these classes where we say, hey, if a cop for some reason doesn't pull you over, can you all just show your hands? Just, just everyone in the car... Have your hands like we don't this. Even, we don't even teach kids how to balance a checkbook. And stuff. Right. Like, we're failing in education. Mm -hmm. I couldn't agree with you more. Like, right. you're, not being, you're not being educated on how to deal with people. Mm -hmm. I agree with you. Right. I also think, and this, and this is something that is 
why police need to be educated okay. a lot more is that I don't think that they're that educated in what they're going to get into either. Yep. Okay, so now you're throwing somebody with four to six months of education in a police academy. And from what I understand, most police departments throw you into the worst neighborhoods first. Mm, you don't get you, you don't get to work you don't get to work Calabasas. So you, you gotta work your way up to that. Mm -hmm. So they're actually throwing you into the war zone right out the gate. And if you're a suburban white kid, by the way, and you're now thrown in with a kid, you gotta admit, yeah. suburban white kids are afraid of black dudes. They're afraid of a car full of black men. They yes. just are. And now you're gonna go, oh, you know what, tackle your fear, go fucking patrol them, go. But my, my question would be to address that. Why? Why are they afraid of black men? I mean, just because it's just the fucking thing. It's just. See, I would argue as a white guy who is, I'm not necessarily scared of black men. I, I, I'm cautious because I see that they have been mistreated for as long as they, as they have, that they carry themselves often with their dukes up. And they're prone. I don't want to just make a generalization, but I'm no, I assuming. I get what you're saying. I'm assuming just when you get fucked with long enough, you just don't want to get fucked with. And your with voice anymore. hasn't been heard. You haven't been heard. Yeah, I, I, there's there's I a hostility, that. and I understand that, but I think that's what needs to change. What needs to change is okay. To your point, John, earlier, we've made massive strides. We women have more rights. People, are black, black people have more. Everyone has more rights. I would say the playing field is about as level as it's ever been. Well, to your point. So what, how do we take this moment and really capitalize on it? And I agree with you, Frank. I think absolutely it's, it's about starting well, with but, how but we I think, police. I, I, think that, I think that the systemic racism and class system in this country, which is what Frank's talking about, mm -hmm. is, is the ultimate problem here. Because I understand that when you go into a low-income neighborhood, in the United States, the in in a major city, I want to be very clear because mm -hmm. you, you you can go out into some hillbilly territory with a lot of mullets. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but if but Trailers. if yeah, but if, but if you're if you're in a major city in the United States and you go into a lower income neighborhood, sadly there will probably be a racial disparity, mm -hmm. right? That is a horrible assumption to assume that that particular race in any way is more prone to violence than any other. It has to do with the conditions for which they found themselves in from a very young age. Sure. Right, so I've been in this studio for over 35 years, 38 years. This was a, a very rough gang neighborhood when I moved here. I never had a day of trouble. And I would walk up to get food. I go to the, I never behaved as if I was in trouble here. Mm -hmm. And I remember someone saying to me, what are you doing? And I said, it's as dangerous as I perceive it to be, and I think it's not dangerous. But, but back to the police situation, why would anybody in their right mind want to be an LAPD officer? Really? I mean, I'm not trying to be cavalier here. That's like saying, I want to go into a war zone every single day of my life. Mm -hmm. Not for a tour, which is a year in the military, right? You do a tour. No, for life. You, this is your job. Yeah. You're going to do 20 years of this stuff and get your pension? Well, what kind of person wants to do that? And, and, and if, if we, need, we need those kind of people, like we need cops, we need people that want to be surgeons. I don't want to be a surgeon. Who wants to go into the, inside the human body? The amount of training I did to become an artist is staggering. The amount of training it takes to become an incredibly exceptional surfer, staggering. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. Right, 
hockey, right? Why is it that cops are allowed to be on the street without a staggering amount of training? Staggering. It's 10,000 hours before you're even remotely an expert at anything. 10,000 hours if you're working around. That's like seven years Mm -hmm. before you're even remotely capable of being an expert at anything. And I think this is where I find the biggest problem is I know we need cops. I hear this all the time. And and we need them and we need a lot of them. Mm -hmm. And that's great. Why are we not creating incentives to get better people to want to do the job and people that are willing to do the training? They're willing to go, I want, I'm going to go to college and I'm going to get, I'm going to get my bachelor's degree in, in police science and I'm going to do my undergraduate work in social work and psychology because I can't join the police academy till I have that. Right. The police academy should be a graduate department. Like if you're thinking of colleges, that's graduate school. You get to go to the police academy after four years of a humanities education in civics, mm-hmm. right? But you have you if you don't have that, you can't go to the police academy. But, but they're I, right now lowering the standards, by the way, everyone. I and know that, but that's they're lowering the standards to become. Sure, a pilot. no, they want every. They we have a we have a, a shortage. Yeah, they're shortage. lowering the standards to becoming a pilot too. Now that they're not getting them out of the air force anymore. Well, the only thing I would say is that. What you're talking about is a little utopian, in my opinion, and the reason I say that is because you're talking about an openness and a willingness and a cognizance to address your feelings and your thoughts and express yourself and to think about how you feel and think and to be communicative, which is not how most people are raised. Most people are not raised that way. Actually, what I'm asking, what I'm asking for... Let me just finish my point, though. No, no, this is important. What I'm asking for is so basic it shouldn't be utopian you don't get to be a you don't get to be a school teacher until you go through college right and you get your degree in whatever field whether it's science or english mm-hmm. and then you have to get a teaching degree right and then you get to go get paid 30, you have to be a student teacher yeah yeah and for thirty thousand a year you get to teach at a school with metal detectors okay <laughs> so but my, my point is is that i don't think the people that gravitate to want to police are the kinds of personalities that also are attracted to education. They're not attracted but, to but, uh, civics. But They're not attracted to humanity. There's, like, you know, I think, it, I think it's wrong and romantic to think that a cop, I want to change the world, no, I want to do good. I don't think that's what I, I'm just them. making the point that there is a standard of education to be a social worker. There should be. No, no. And it's insane. Yeah. It's a lot of college mm-hmm. to become a social worker. It's a lot of college to become a first grade school teacher. Yes. A lot of college, like a couple hundred thousand in debt to make 35,000 a year. Mm-hmm. Okay? There's, we already have these standards set for civil servants. And I agree. I'm saying I don't is, think people are. They're, they're not going to stick around. They're not. This. You're then, not going to have a police then, force. Because what attracts you know what? people to becoming a police agree. officer is a feeling of power. Mm-hmm. It's a feeling. I don't agree. It's guns. It's all of these things. Because you say, I wonder what kind of person wants to be a cop. They're made it for a four-week course, and they don't have enough of them. I know, I, you make it harder. You put more of these roadblocks in the way. We will have less cops because I for, believe the kinds of for people. A mo- for a time. But we, right now is not the time know, where we need time, less. But for a time. Because I don't really think the cops that are out there are actually doing anything but increasing crime because of their behavior. 
So if you have to go for four or five years, and maybe that would be a good thing for the public to experience what it's like to have not enough cops. Mm -hmm. Because if you want to solve the problem, you have to make it mandatory that you get this education. The fact is, in four or five years, the people that want the job, they would be willing to do it. They would be. To be a fireman takes more training than a cop. Correct. It doesn't stop firemen from wanting to be firemen. Mm -hmm. They have to do all this, all this stuff of like, uh, you know, CPR stuff. They've got to do all this training. They have to do all this, like, th their physical activities are insane, yep. right? They have to know how to take a fire truck apart and put it back together blindfolded. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. it's kind of nuts what they have to learn sure. to do, you know. So I, I guess I don't, I don't like the argument the people wouldn't apply for the job if it was harder to get in. I'm not, I'm not saying it's an argument. I'm just, my concern mm -hmm. is that, uh, you know, I've, I've only known, I, working in the film industry for a long time, every time we were on location, we would have a cop or two yeah. off-duty officers. Yeah, yeah, of course. And they keep it keep you safe, apparently. Um, and But, I, I mean, I always had the same conversations with these guys. It was always the same thing. What kind of gun do you have? You know, mm -hmm. this sort of stuff. It was superficial. But then when, if we ever got into anything of, of depth or meaning or substance, you know, these these folks, um, these are these are these are generally speaking, these are folks that want to be in a club that's better than everybody else. There, there's not enough of a litmus test for these people, and and you can't solve the problem by going, yeah, but those kind of guys, they wouldn't want to do that. Well, good. Right, get someone else. <laughs> or have no cops. Yeah, I know that sounds incredibly insane. It's, it's a theory. Yeah. Well, for the moment, yeah. for the moment, it might actually make the cops that are out there realizing they're not getting any backup that they better start behaving better too because there's, there's no new recruits coming in. Like, I, I think that we have to do something that, I, I know that sounds crazy, we have to do something so bloody radical because what we're doing isn't working. Right. Right. Well, we need to get rid of qualified immunity. What is qualified immunity? Qualified immunity is that an officer can make a mistake. He yes. can even take your life. Yes. But as long as he was doing it in the capacity of his job, even if he's wrong, right. even if he's wrong, right. they get one free pass. If Say, say uh, a cop, for some reason, a, a kid spit gum at him. So the cop shot the kid. As long as that's never happened before, that same exact incident never happened before, he gets qualified immunity. In his, oh, see, that's, that's ridiculous. That's what qualified immunity, and it's not even a law; it was just a, it's a legal founding, and it's been going on for a while. And it's a you. I mean, they're trying to end qualified. You immunity. give you give so, you give a college kid. You give if, if you're a professor, and there is more than it, it, in a year. Let's say a college year. If I've given out more than two D's, I'm called into the office to wonder why I'm not a good enough teacher to give A's. Mm -hmm. Like, you you can't even fail college students. Mm -hmm. You can't even do it. They they bring you in the office and go, "What are you doing?" Right. Right. You're not performing. You're not. Pre you're you're failing. Right. Like th there's no bad students. There's only bad teachers. <laughs> like we live in a society of insanity. Yes. Okay. Qualified immunity is insane. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, if you've ever taken a life as a police officer, you maybe that's time. Even if it was a good a good kill or whatever, <laughs> maybe it's time that you have to sit a desk for two years. Or you, well, if you, if you, hey, like you have to do something where you're not you even know, allowed to go back on the streets. Yeah. If you kill somebody that is not, is turned that he was not going to harm you, Yeah. and yes, you're, we're done. We, we as the citizens should have the right to say, we don't want you as a servant. I don't want that person on the street. My hero, one of my heroes, Benjamin Franklin, he started at the first, second or third 
all police force in all of America. He was a cop? No, he started it. He oh. started. He was a statesman. He was no, he was a fucking I was going to say. He was a baller and a player. What are you talking about? Frank, <laughs> he was awesome. He made the first police department in Philadelphia. And it was not for so I, I and again, I hang out with a lot of police reform people who whenever you say when the police start to say they catch slaves. Not true. Not true. The all the upper east coast cities were getting police departments to stop two things. Robberies and prostitution. Philadelphia was Fucking crazy with that stuff at that time. Um, Still is, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, Philly's, <laughs> Philly's always going to be Philly. Philly's yeah. always going to be Philly. He just started it for that, so they would stop those type of things from mm-hmm. happening, which is a great job. The neighborhoods that you guys talk about, you live right outside of, I lived in, mm-hmm. okay? And I remember growing up and everyone going, ever since the N-words moved in, this neighborhood has really gone to crap. The factories closed down. GE was the big employer. Yeah. So GE goes out, black people come, black people start moving in, in the neighborhood. And when I was younger, I thought they were the cause. And as I got older and I realized the real reality of life was, no, the factories closed first. And the white people were moving out. And as the white people couldn't pay their bills anymore and they started moving to where other jobs were, the housing went down. So the people coming out of the housing projects had a place to go because they were trying to close. Right, and that's reality. That the neighborhood it was already poor; it just was now poverty, and people can move in because of the pricing mm-hmm. of the poverty. Mm-hmm. Right? People who had a hard time getting work. Yeah, I mean, all the factories are closed now. Right. Campbell's Soup closed. All of them, and and then then it became black. And a lot of people, from my point of view at the time, was once they moved in, then it went to hell. And it wasn't. It was the opposite. The things had already gone. Hell was created. Yeah. And now the housing prices and the, you know, people, white people were moving to the suburbs. The white flight mm-hmm. moves. And what do they do? They start renting their houses for cheaper. So the renters are coming in, and that's when the poverty starts to set in. It's the same thing with Los Angeles. You know, the homeless problem, which we have a, a horrible homeless problem. Do you know Orange County pushes all their homeless here? Mm-hmm. And then what do they do? They go, look at them Democrat cities with all the homeless. They push them here. Mm-hmm. They push the homeless here. Because why? Because it's more accepted and it's, they, you know, it's a better place for them to be. It's a better place for them to be. Um, and then they scream, look at the Democratic cities. We have to start looking at the fact that it is reality that we still have not given certain communities the right shake. The right hand up. We just haven't. We've kind of said, mm-hmm. whoever we give them, they destroy. When people protest and riot and they burn cities, I love when they talk to black people and they say, why would you burn down your neighborhood? And they go, mine it. That CVS ain't fucking mine. This building's ain't mine. I rent this. Uh, that happened to me one time. I was, this is years ago. And I'm walking to the corner and a kid's coming the other way, a young black kid. And he just threw his McDonald's bag in the street and cup. And I went, hey, man, we all got to live here together. Why would you do that? And he went, I don't own any of this. And the moment he said it, I thought, oh, this is, really, this is a very important thing for me to hear because he didn't feel any attachment to any of this because he didn't feel that he was ever going to have any ownership or agency here. There's no real neighborhood pride. And it made me, it it really broke my heart because he was young. And I thought, wow, 
he does, he's already feeling hopeless, right? And that, that to me was a great tragedy that, that he already understood a kind of position he was in, not by choice, but through birth and through mm -hmm. my life. I think, you know, I, you know, one thing you're saying that's super important, Frank, to me, is that I think we don't spend enough time looking at the, the entire story. We always look at the end, mm -hmm. right? And it's so easy. This is why I said earlier, I never talk shit about my dad or, like, I don't, I, I'm not a blamer. Mm -hmm. I just don't believe in blame. So, because I, I always look at it like, well, if I go into blame and I blame anybody for anything that is my life, then I can understand, then I have to understand why people are gonna wanna blame, let's say, people of color, brown people, for a problem. Mm -hmm. Because you're a culture that's always pointing the finger at somebody else, it's not, it's not because I fucked up, right. it's because they're here, right? That kind of thinking is such, is such it's cowardly, because it's not taking into consideration your own sovereignty. Mm -hmm. To say, I am unhappy and I have failed in life and I did not succeed in the things I wanted to do, because I made bad choices, not because of this person who moved into my neighborhood, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So I, since I'm really opposed to blaming, whenever I hear blame culture, mm -hmm. whether it's Trump's trying to blame you know, people from Mexico for mm -hmm. crime, whatever mm -hmm. he was trying to, and I understood why people wanted to believe that. Mm -hmm. They wanted to believe that because it gives them off the hook for their own shortcomings, right? Mm -hmm. So how do we as a culture get over that in, on every matrix? Like it's not just like talking about it within the African-American community or talking, like how do we just all stop doing that, mm -hmm. you know? I went through something personally in my life with a gallery and the dealer turned out to be really, really corrupt. Mm -hmm. And a lot of artists I know that I respect have played victim to what happened and, to, and I have never been willing to do that. Did, did things happen that were inappropriate? Yeah. Was I a victim? Not even close, because I signed up. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. so, so I really hear what you're saying, and I think that it's amazing that collective cabal thinking, mm -hmm. it's that group of people, and it's their fault mm -hmm. that the city's gone to shit. Mm -hmm. It's those liberals, it's this, mm -hmm. right? Or what we do with the cops, those fucking cops. And then the cops go, those fucking People. civilians. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, how do we solve the fact that we're all pointing the finger? And as our mother would say, when you point mm. your finger at someone, three fingers are pointing back at yourself, right? right. So I, I don't want to point the finger at anybody, you know? Because I don't look at anybody's situation that way. Because I don't think it's going to solve anything. Okay. And I think that the problem we're facing in our society is, is what that you, traffic? Is outside. what you grew up with that made you go into the neo-Nazis for a period of your life right. was a was a false narrative, fear, it, and a lie, and a lie, and fear. a lie, mm -hmm. because it's always a lie. Is my point? It's like, well, it's their fault. Mm -hmm. Well, really? And I said, I'm bringing that up because I want to say that about the police department. I don't want to say it's their fault any more than I want to say where races say, oh, it's because of the Mexicans. That, like, right. I don't believe in that. It's, it's, is it the patrolman's fault? No, it's a larger systemic problem that led to that patrolman being in that situation without the education and the training to do his job correctly. And he's gonna go to jail for the rest of his life for this, mm -hmm. okay? 
Sadly, I think the sergeants should go to jail, and I think oh. the training people should. I think, like, this person who did the Hallelujah. act, this person did the act, give me a break. They should go to jail. The trainers. Everybody in a position of authority over them is equally guilty, period. Okay, but, but wait a second. I, I yeah, have to jump in. Go, so you reminded me of something of the young kid who threw the trash out. Yeah. Okay. Um, I worked on a movie a few years back in the Bahamas. It was an amazing experience. We, it was such a beautiful and amazing place to be and to work. It was incredible. Mm -hmm. We had a local production assistant. She was a great lady. And she took a bunch of the crew into the interior of Nassau. Mm. Mm. That's not where the tourists go. Right. Yeah, I know. I get it. And what struck me was stray dogs, trash, mm -hmm. hovels, and a society of human beings, predominantly African-American or at Black, because they're not Americans in Bahamas. Mm -hmm. Bahamians, black Bahamians, who were living in conditions that were such a stark contrast to what the tourists saw. Mm -hmm. And I remember saying to myself, man, this is unexpected. And I asked this woman who was giving us a tour, who grew up there, I said, what's going on? What is this? And she says, well, it's, it's sort of sad. And I said, sort of sad? I mean, this is paradise lost. Mm -hmm. what's going on? And she said something, I can't say it verbatim because I don't quite remember exactly what she said, but it was to the effect of the people of this island were slaves for 500 years. Mm. And when they became liberated only 60 years ago, they decided that they were no longer going to have the mentality of being slaves. And so when they see trash they go to, I'm not going to pick that up. You fucking used to beat the shit out of me to pick up that trash. And guess what? I don't have to. Now, I just thought it was really impactful mm -hmm. because it's a mentality. It's but, the result but, of the but, systemic but that, issues. But that is a systemic trauma. Correct. That's a trauma response? Correct. And it's but sad. But I think that's what's happening largely in our communities. That, that goes back to you with the kids with the bikes. Exactly right. They're unoppressed anymore and are like, you know what? Years ago, we used to get run over by the cops for riding these yeah, bikes. Now, fuck you. Now, look what I can do. Fuck you. And I think what needs to happen, it all goes back to what you said in the beginning of the podcast, John. It's all about how do we educate society from a young age the impact of behavior and why it affects others. So I live in a neighborhood, again, I've mentioned it before. I live in a neighborhood that's very transitional. It's predominantly African-American. And I'm I, it, every time I see it, I just... It's exactly the story you said, John. I have people that park in front of my house. They'll get some to-go food at a local drive-thru. They will eat it, and then they will throw all of the debris of that meal out of their car window and drive off. At the same time, some of my neighbors will say, I'm so sick and tired of living in this shithole. It's just so damn dirty and no one respects nothing while they're throwing trash out their window. It's just a perspective thing. Mm -hmm. I think there needs to be a real come to Jesus moment in our society where people have to understand that what they do affects others. Well, what I'd like to add something to the they in that. I think we all have to become really sensitive to the stories we tell ourselves, okay? So the liberal story that I grew up in is as much of a fallacy as the right-wing story, okay? Mm -hmm. And the, the fallacy, the story that that person who throws the trash on the street is telling mm -hmm. is a bit of a fallacy, sure. too. So I, 
I want to be really clear that I, I, I listen to their story, whatever that story, they, whatever they mm -hmm. means, and that I'm a they. Mm -hmm. Now, I, yeah. apparently we're all they now. Yeah, we are. So, so I have to be very careful of the stories I tell myself because most of us are telling stories that support the personal ego. We don't like to tell stories that make us feel bad about ourselves, right? right. So it's like, well, you know, I'm, you know, I don't behave like that. Mm -hmm. You know, so I like, ah, but you behave like shit other ways. Well, yeah, right? you, like, you buy an iPhone, you're, su yeah, you're supporting yeah. human suffering yeah, exactly, in China. Exactly. So I guess I'm really sensitive to the stories we tell ourselves mm -hmm. and then the collective community stories. And the thing that makes Homo sapiens what we are is our ability to create social agreements at scale that no other mammal has been able to do. Like, we are able to function at scale by storytelling. Mm -hmm. And if that storytelling is democracy or capitalism or Christianity racism. Or, or, or racism can be a story. It can become an identity that creates a community around it. Mm -hmm. We have to be really cognitive of the fact that these are all stories. And we know this because when astronauts go into space, they all talk about when you look down at the blue ball, you don't see borders and you don't see bounds. They all have this crazy epiphany. We're all on a rock Because they're way above the 30,000 that I'm trying to live at. Right. They're way up. So when you do that, you start to realize, yeah, the whole America is a story. Mm -hmm. It's a story. And... And that story is who, who wrote the story, the victors, mm -hmm. right? So you, you have to accept the fact that the story is probably not entirely accurate, mm -hmm. you know? Right. So, so I'm, I'm really fascinated with this idea of if we all have to learn how to get back around the table like this, and everybody should be able to tell their story including the cop, including the gangbanger, including the white, the, the, the white racist, mm -hmm. including the woke liberal, like whatever it is. The victors and the victims. But, the, but until we're all at the table, each telling our story without judgment by the other, there's no solution. Because you have to be able to hear the story no matter how horrific it is. Like Frank told his story to many people of what he's done right in his past. And because we do live in a cooperative society of forgiveness and redemption, which is a beautiful thing, Frank has been able to rise out of a hell that was as much of a hell for you as anybody you perpetrated it onto. And now you're a person of change and growth and philosophy and faith, right? Mm -hmm. That only happened because people were willing to listen to you and not judge you, right? Okay. I mean, I think people will come to my lectures. People will come to my lectures, come with the thought of, did this guy really change? They're willing to give you the benefit. Absolutely. Of so what I'm saying is, I have to feel I can do that with a cop, a gangbanger, a KKK. Trump supporter. A Trump supporter. I just feel like I need to allow them to speak what they have to say. I don't have to agree with them. I don't have to do any of that, but I think one of the issues we're suffering from in our society mm -hmm. is no one feels heard, okay? They feel yelled at, they feel spoken to, and I think one of the systemic problems in the police department is that they don't feel heard either, and I don't agree with anything they're doing, but I know for sure they don't feel heard, 
because the moment they try to speak, we're like, no, right? And we have to stop doing that. Period, we have to stop doing that. That doesn't mean at the end of the day you go, I heard you, right. and now you're going to jail. Right. <laughs> but, but, but I do think anybody who doesn't feel heard becomes tribal. Mm-hmm. Anybody. Mm-hmm. And, if that's, and if that tribe is going to be around poverty and race, or it's going to be around wealth and fame, or it's going to be about a, a gay community because they feel safer in their community together, right? So we have all these ghettos, a gay community is a ghetto, a wealthy community is a ghetto, right? Yeah. A poor community is a ghetto. Ghettos are just closed communities. Mm-hmm. That's all they are. Sure. doesn't mean poverty of any kind. Right. And I don't mean that in terms of wealth disparity. Beverly Hills is a ghetto. Brentwood is a ghetto. South Central is a ghetto. The Valley is its own ghetto, right? The mm-hmm. art world is a ghetto because mm-hmm. we are totally... We're totally sequestered amongst each other, like, well, we know better because we make art, right? Mm -hmm. This is the most dangerous thing that can happen to a society, is is these ghettos. And the car in LA has made it even worse because you can be at a red light with the windows rolled up in your Mercedes, and the guy can be next to you, and you can stay in your ghetto. Take it with you everywhere you go. Take it everywhere you go. Where when I was in New York and spending time, you know, I get on the subway and there's a there's a thread count Wall Street uptown guy and sitting next to him is a guy from the streets and they're sharing the sports page. They are together. They're forced into each other's lives. How do we actually force ourselves to hang out with cops or hang out with gangbangers or hang out with people we don't agree with? And how do we get to a place where we can quit creating more and more tribal behavior. That well, I think, I think, interestingly enough, one of the biggest ways to, to the point of the show today is art. Art is a unifier. We're talking well, about film, unification. Film, film and music is... But that's is all part of the art. Yeah, of that's all, it's expression, it's human Absolutely. expression, and it's supposed to... It's, it, it, is, it binds us. But and not everybody can be an artist. No, agreed. But everyone should experience it and understand the importance of it. What great art does is expose our blind spots. That's what great art does. That's what artists can do for the activism that you want and I want, is artists expose blind spots. You're exposing blind spots in your way. You're exposing it through your knowledge of history. And you're saying, no, you have a blind spot. You think it's because of this, but it's actually because of that. So all we can do is expose blind spots. That's all we can do. Right, mm-hmm. and if we do that correctly, and we can do it with humor and in the arts and everything, people will finally go. You know what? And, and and kindly, Will and Grace, the TV show, did more for LGBTQ community than you could imagine. Like the entire country was watching these this gay these two gay friends and the girl who's friends and you know, you know the show. Mm-hmm. Right? A lot of people attribute that that show was responsible for gay marriage getting passed across the country. Yeah. So. So when we think, oh, it's some silly little sitcom, no, yeah. that went into everybody's home. And after a couple of weeks, they started liking these two actors, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And they thought, those are, they're funny, mm-hmm. and they're quick, and it's great, right? So I want the arts, I want us to all be super supportive of the arts when the arts are willing to put themselves on the line. I want people to be supportive of you, Frank, when you put yourself on the line. 
as long as what we're doing is exposing blind spots with tolerance and love. Because if we do it any other way, it won't work. That's the Frank Meeks show. There it is. Very good. And we appreciate you coming out, John, and, and giving hey, us your time. Hey, I actually appreciate you guys coming to me. It made it much easier. I, I didn't have to move my car. <laughs> <laughs> and it's great. Uh, John is also a, a very much so a supporting member of our Frank Meeks show in, in many ways and uh, is, is a friend and uh, a mentor, and uh, we appreciate your perspective. Love to have you back again and again and again. It's always interesting to hear what you have to say. I think it's important that we remind ourselves that we're in it to win it. We're in it to, to make change, to grow, to learn from one another. And like you said eloquently today, John, just be all of us to be at the table. And that's what this show is, is for all of us to be at the table. We appreciate you being at the table today. Appreciate it. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you, Frank. Thank you.